All right, well, if you've got a Bible this morning, open it with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you've ever been driving down the road in your car um, and you've hit a patch of ice, probably not around here, but maybe somewhere else, um, or you've hit a puddle of water and you felt that pull, that tug, Right? Where you realize you're not really fully in control of the car anymore. Um, it's in those moments and you really realize how dangerous driving a vehicle can be anyway. It kind of shocks you, kind of scares you as you feel that shift where you know you're longer, longer in control. And it's very scary actually. kind of sobers your senses a little bit and hopefully everything turns out okay and you get things uh, back under control. But I'm just talking about those little moments like that that you have. Um, and we don't like those moments besides the fact that they're scary because really it reminds us and it takes control sort of out of our hands. And if we react wrongly in that moment, things can really spin out of control. And we are wired in such a way that we like to be in control. We don't like not having control. It's just human nature. And a key theme in the book of Ecclesiastes is that much of life is really out of your control. That you really can't just tied up uh, and, 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 and put it nice here and neatly in a little box. Um, you can't really control much of what happens to you in life, much of what you see happen around you in life. And that is one of the things at times that frustrates, in a sense, the writer of Ecclesiastes. If we could control everything in life, we wouldn't be humans, we'd be God. And the fact that we're not in control, many times, to use a simple word, frustrates us. And we look out at a broken world, and we don't know what to do. We see things we'd like to change, and we don't know how to change them, or we can't change them. And we see things that seem unfair, and we don't know what to do about those things. But this lack of control shouldn't be as frustrating to us, even though it is, as it should be humbling to us. It should humble us. And throughout this chapter, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 is what we're going to look at this morning, whole chapter. To some degree, uh, the next chapter also deals with this a little bit, focuses on these reminders in a sense of this the, the theme in Ecclesiastes, one of the themes that things are out of our control. And it's important for us to embrace humility over frustration uh, as we look out on life and we're reminded of those things. And to not give up, but rather surrender to the one we know who is in control. To not turn from, but rather turn to God. So, just kind of some difficult things that we're going to walk through as we look at this, these these passages. And what we're going to do is we're going to we're kind of see big three big chunks of scripture here um, that we're going to kind of take them one chunk at a time, and then we're going to have some takeaways as we talk about. Um, the out-of-control nature of life. And before we begin reading, let's ask the Holy Spirit, let's ask the Lord um, to speak to us this morning, help us understand His Word. Father, we're grateful this morning for the Word of God. We're grateful for the book of Ecclesiastes, which you have given us for our edification um, to make us more like Jesus. Uh, if we don't know Jesus, to point us to our need for Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do just that as we open the Word of God, that you would speak to our hearts and mold us, help us to understand your Word, teach us your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Let's read the first nine verses together. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. 
Be not hasty to go from His presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for He does whatever He pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. So he starts these verses there in the first verse in chapter 8, focusing again on wisdom, letting us know that he is still focused on imparting wisdom to us. Wisdom is life-changing. It makes his face shine. The hardness of the face is changed. And he might even be pointing to the one who is in the presence of the king and how if he's wise, um, he will act and behave a certain way in front of the one who in this context had absolute authority in a lot of ways um, over this person. He may even be beginning to address a servant of the king or someone who was a counselor to the king on what it should look like uh, when they conduct themselves in the presence of the king. But from this passage, we begin to understand some things about authority. And life is full of authority. Is there anything humans have more trouble with than submitting to authority instead of trying to control authority and being in control and having the authority or manipulating the authority to get it the way we'd like it? In fact, if we could control it all the time, maybe we'd be more willing to submit (laughs) if we were the ones in control. Imagine a world this morning where you pick your boss. Imagine a world this morning that if you don't ask like what your boss is asking you to do, you just change the request of your boss. right? You just go in there and program him or her. Imagine a world where you select every government official and write and pass every law yourself. If you don't like a law, you just change it. Imagine a world where you write the rules and the moral laws. And if you don't like them, you just change them. Who's God in this world? (laughs) You are, right? We'd be imagining a world where we're God. We're the only one with authority. It's a make-believe world. And really, it would be a horrible world. Because if we got real honest, we're a mess. (laughs) And we shouldn't have that kind of authority. In fact, authorities are earthly reminders that we don't control everything. They're earthly reminders that we're ultimately under a supreme authority. And they should, that should humble us. The first part of this chapter is dealing with the king, he says. And it's likely being written with someone in mind, as I mentioned, who had to deal directly with the king, a counselor, a servant, someone who had direct access. And kings had great power in this time period. When you combine great power and you combine the wickedness of man, you many times get abuse and you get injustice and you get corruption. But he says in verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. In the Hebrew, this can be, the God's oath to him can be translated a couple of different ways. It can be the person's oath to God, or it can be God's oath to the king. So he could be saying to the servant, you made an oath to God to obey the king, so keep it. Or he could be saying, remember, God appointed the authority, and so God's got an oath to the king, so to speak. In the context of Israel, especially, this would have been a reminder. So either way, the point is, he is putting God right in the middle of this. 
The relationship between the authority of the king, between the governing official and this person, he is saying, don't forget, God is right in the middle of all this. This is not God over here and this is over here. It's not an unspiritual issue. It is a spiritual issue. And the key is that we are to strive to obey those in authority. And in particular here, he's talking about governing authority. The government. God has designed the world to work in such a way that authority and the humility to submit before authorities in our life is actually God's ideas. These are God's plans. Everyone has to submit to someone, even if it's just the government and God. No one gets to skate through life autonomous and accountable only to ourselves. The truth is, dealing with authority can be difficult because we can't control people. <laughs> and we don't know what they're going to do. And we don't know what they're going to say. But all the way through every structure, there's God has designed the world to work in this way. The family, right? Children are obey and honor their parents. The husband's to be the head of the home. I mean, these are, these are just ingrained in, uh, in, in the... Um, the things that God has, the institutions God has ordained. The workplace, right? Somebody's got to be a boss. Somebody's got to be a manager. Somebody has to hold people accountable. Even in the church, God has a governing structure. And in the government, obviously, God has a governing... In, in, in the government in itself, right, is, a, is an idea from God. And that can be expressed and we see expressed in many different ways all around the world. Some places have kings. Some places have presidents. Some places have prime ministers and different things and ways of governing the point is, the idea of government and the idea of authority and the idea of submission, these are not things that we have invented. This is something that God has, a common grace that God has gifted us to have a well-ordered society. And it also is a reminder for us that we're all ultimately under authority. I find that if we have trouble submitting to authority, if we have trouble honoring authority between whatever the earthly situation might be, name the context, many times there's a deeper issue with our submitting to God's authority. The heart of the matter is, he says, because of God's oath, or because of your oath to God, and it's God, our relationship with God, that drives our respect for and honoring and submission to authorities that God places in our life. Even if we don't like whatever situation we might be in, we love our Lord. But what if you disagree with the authorities? In particular, the government. And he deals with that in those verses 3 through 7. And in verses 3 through 5, he says, do not be hasty. <laughs> in their day, you had a king who had absolute authority, right? And so when you disagree, he says, don't just rudely leave the king's presence. This could go very badly for you. But at the same time, you have to have balance here. While you shouldn't be quick to walk away or rebel, you must not take your stand in an evil cause. So we have this balancing act when it comes to authority. We lean heavily towards obedience, towards, for instance, our government. Heavily towards obedience. When it comes to disobeying God, though, we quickly move back the other way. We obey God rather than man. The king's word in this day was supreme. He points that out. They didn't get to question the king. He's saying, if you will obey him, it will be good with you, with your relationship with the king. Nothing bad's going to happen to you in that sense. But he says, notice, there's a proper time and a just way. And other times, in other words, there's a way, there's a time to question things. There's a time to, to press the issue a little bit. And there's a time to outright say no. And he says, the wise person will know how to handle these situations. See, when you look at the big picture, he's warning us against a rash, full-hearted approach into dealing with a sinful king or government. And there's a time to press back and say, is this wise? 
There's a time to show and to, and to participate kind of in a process. And there's also a time to obey. Just obey. <laughs> and there's also a time to say no. And the wise person, he says, will know what that is. And the rest of the Bible makes it clear to us what that is. And we have to understand government is not perfect. We don't have kings in our nation, but we do have those in authority. And this idea still applies. There's a wise way to challenge the process. There's a foolish way to challenge the process. And there is a time to actually disobey the government. But we lean heavy towards obedience because we know what Romans 13, 1 and 2 tells us. Let me read it to you. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And I think that's written with this idea. And we know sometimes governments are very corrupt. Sometimes government does wicked things, but this is written in such a way that so that we know as Christians, our posture is to be towards submission. And so the government knows, as they read it, as they would have read it in Rome, why God ordained government. And it was ultimately to be a blessing to people. It was ultimately to, to be so the wicked and gets punished and justice gets done and the good get protected. And when those things don't happen, the government is not doing what God has appointed it to do. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That's the way Jesus said it. In other words, be a good citizen. In our, in our government, that means voting. That means pushing for a just government. That means defending our government. That means all those sort of things that, that go in with that. Rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar asks certain things of us in our government. Caesar might ask certain things of somebody else in another government. Our government actually invites us to participate. What a privilege, what an honor that we get to participate in the process that we actually are, in a sense, the government. <laughs> and many times in that system we get exactly what we deserve. In Acts 5 we find out there's times the government may overreach. In Acts 5.29 the disciples are being told by governing officials to stop preaching the gospel. And Peter said, and the apostles answered, quote, we must obey God rather than men. You say, where's the line? Where do we get to look at Uncle Sam or whoever and say no? It's when you have to choose between obeying God or obeying man. And that is a very clear line that the apostles and the disciples in the, first, in the early church drew and one that we still draw today. You say, what if I just don't like a law? Do you have to disobey God to obey the law? Well, no. Then obey the law. Or you disobey God. Because God has said obey the government. What? Well, what if the law means I have to disobey God to obey the law? Then you sure best obey God rather than man. What if there's consequences? Who is your Lord? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's clear. The Bible's very clear for us. There's a new law in Russia that you may or may not have heard about that actually prohibits evangelization, evangelizing, spreading the gospel. They are outlawing sharing your faith outside the church building or other areas that are designated by the government. Something as simple as inviting people to church now is outlawed. You can't have a Bible study in your home. You say, this is 2016. I said, yeah. Exactly. He said, well, that's in Russia. And I said, yeah, and it can happen here. Right? 
That people made in God's image who are warped by the fall are instituting laws like these and people who are made in God's image who are warped by the law can do things like you say. That would never happen here. Man, there's a lot of things happening here that if you'd asked me five, ten years ago, I'd have said never happened here. Some of you can say 40, 50 years ago, I'd have never thought that happened here. So absolutely we can go this direction. So Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ and missionaries and things like that who are in Russia and Russian believers, they've got a choice to make. Will they do what Jesus said and go and make disciples and preach the gospel to every nation or they do what Vladimir Putin and all those people want them to do and the governing officials and they're going to have to choose. They're in a difficult spot that they must choose to obey God rather than man and that very thing could happen here. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. This is what the text drives us to is to deal with these issues. He says, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war. No moral wickedness deliver those who are given to it. What is his point here? He's saying, nobody has absolute power, not even the king. Ultimately, you don't even have power over the day of death. The king doesn't even know when he will die. There's a limit to power. But he points out, I observed this while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. So the context is people hurting people with power. And people do use power to hurt others. And the abuse of power by sinful people is ultimately bad for everybody. And that should be humbling for those who are in authority. To know it's not just about those under authority that must choose to live humbly, but those in authority must choose to live humbly or it's going to be bad for everybody. No matter the authority, it can be used to hurt others. Parents can abuse children. Bosses can be jerks. The government can be corrupt. Some people get on a power trip. There is a time when authority must be actually resisted and choose God over man. But we can't control those in authority. We can't control the government ultimately and completely. Even in our system, we we can choose to live in wisdom. We can know when to and how to disagree and when and how to resist if it comes to that. And we have to choose wisdom over just frustration, just giving up. We can't control authority, but we can control our response to it. We can govern ourselves. Now, next he deals with something else. And that is this: what happens to the wicked and what happens to the righteous. He says in verse 10, I saw the wicked buried and they, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Sometimes the wicked are praised. He looks reflecting on the funeral of a wicked person and he thinks about how they were celebrated and praised in the city where they had done wicked things. And he says, what vanity. You know, we live in a broken world that sometimes praises wicked people. Sometimes it's because it could be a context that they didn't know this person was wicked. Maybe it was clothed in self-righteousness, right? But other times, wickedness is celebrated and praised in the streets right in front of us, right? And everybody knows it's wickedness. Abortionists are praised as women as health advocates. Right? Real stuff. Dictators are praised as great leaders. And he says, this is the effect of living in a fallen world where unjust things happen. The believer craves justice because we survey and know a just God. But many times we see injustice and in this life we can't control the fact that the wicked are sometimes praised. And sometimes the wicked seem to get away with things. In verse 11 he says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Did you know a people will abuse grace? 
God's grace, your grace, the government's grace, whoever's grace. They abuse the grace given to them by the government. They abuse the grace given to them by a parent. When rules are broken and there are no consequences, people don't generally say, wow, you know what, I'm going to change now. And Typically they say, well, I can do whatever I want to do. They say that's the nature of the human heart. When an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is set fully to do evil. It's a general proverb sort of thing here. I'm just kind of saying this is this typically doesn't go well, right? Imagine the kid at the you see at the store who's acting like just crazy, right? And they're all over the place, and the parents just completely oblivious, right? Checking Twitter or whatever, right? Or they're out chasing Pokemon. I don't know. And the kid's just acting a fool, and you think. You know, I bet one day that kid will just, you know, will just say, you know what? I really should act better. I really should behave better. I really, I, I really shouldn't, um, I really shouldn't destroy things when I'm in a store. I really, should. no, right? That's not the way it works. They think, wow, this must be okay. We know that about children, right? Well, it's that way just about people in general. When there's no consequences, and and really what he's driving at is he's looking out at the world and he sees the wicked praise and he sees injustice going unpunished, and it's just like he's saying, and it only gets worse. And the real underlying point is, is hey God, where's the justice? Because here's what happens: many times people misunderstand God's patience for God's approval. His grace was, has given man time to repent. But apart from God's convicting and leading us to repentance, we just abuse His grace and assume He's approved of what we do. Second Peter 3.9 points to this. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As we await Christ's return, as we await justice, as we await all those things, we have to understand the Lord's just not lollygagging around up there, right? He is being patient for people to come to repentance. It's grace. But in the midst of that, people go, well, He must not be coming back. People go, well, it must be, you know, I gotta, I get away with this. God hasn't struck me dead yet. It must not be too big. I don't feel bad when I do it. You ever heard that one? It makes me happy. God must be okay with it. He said, no, God's being patient with you. He's not being okay with you. He's not approving of what you do. He's just shown you grace and hasn't thumped you in the head yet, right? Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, he says, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God. He goes on to say, it will not be well with the wicked. What's he saying? Even in the midst of this, he says this, I am confident that when it's all said and done, sin pays differently in the end than it does in the beginning. And it does. Right? So does ice cream, chocolate cake, and all those things. On the front end, the payment's pretty good. On the back end, when the sugar crash happens, or we begin the diet, or we're diabetic, or whatever the situation may be, right? The health consequences, it's not as good. And in a like manner, sin on the front end is attractive. It's alluring. There's a, there's a satisfaction. There's a fulfillment. There may even be an advantage. There may even be a, a success in this world because of it. But in the end, it's not going to go well with the wicked. There will be a judgment day. He says, he will not prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And sometimes things are simply not fair. 
when we look at what happens to the wicked and the righteous. Verse 14 says there's a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. He says this is vanity. Now we know this is true. Sometimes we find it very difficult to see played out. Sometimes people do right, but get what seems only wicked people deserve. And sometimes people do wrong, and it seems like they get what righteous people deserve. In this broken world, life is not fair. The scales of justice are broken to a certain degree. And not God's, but the world's. And sometimes the terrorist escapes. And sometimes the missionary dies on the field. That's the kind of what he's looking at here. And he's just saying, where's the fairness? And we don't doubt these things. The question is, what do we do? Well, we, we represent Christ. We seek justice. We don't despair. We hold to Him in faith knowing that in the end it will be well with the righteous. It won't be well with the wicked. But notice what he says in verse 15. It may surprise you. Did you catch it? He goes right from that into, and I commend joy. He does that over and over again in this book. For man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. He says, I commend joy. He wants to make sure that we don't become overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world to the point that we don't enjoy life. Because at the end of the day, the world is broken and you can't fix it. Only Jesus can fix it. And He's going to fix it. He's wanting us to realize not to be overwhelmed. Verses 16 and 17 he kind of deals with a different topic. Human limitations. He said he applied his heart to wisdom. He looked at the work of God and it all begins to click. He says, as I applied my heart to wisdom and I saw God's work, it begins to click. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand everything. I can't wrap my mind around it. He says the phrase, I cannot find out or will not find out three times in one verse. There are some things that we're never going to know. We are limited creatures with limited understanding. We have, we have a, a governor on us, so to speak. You know, I used to love, growing up, one of my favorite things about vacations, we'd go to the beach down in Gulf Shores or Panama City, and one of my favorite things, or from here up there, and from one of my favorite things was uh, the go-kart rides. I had to do that a couple of times while we were there, right? And you get to race dad, and you get to sister, and we, everybody gets, you know, whoever's always with us, and, and we race, right? And so, and I come to realize over time that it's not as much skill as it is luck. Because those little things, they can adjust how fast they can go or how slow they can make them go. And sometimes you get one that for whatever reason, somebody for whatever reason just decided he'd crank it up a little bit more than the others. But if you're stuck in green number two and everybody's buzzing around you out there on that go-kart track, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. But just finish the race and feel like you wasted your $4. And if you're stuck in red number one and it's blazing past everybody, just enjoy the ride, right? But at the end of the day, it's it's kind of out of our control. And there's a limit that has been set in a, in a similar manner. We have limitations set on us. We we have a governor, so to speak, that we we just can't understand everything. We can't comprehend everything. Some things happen that we'll never be able to explain. We're not God, and we have to be careful that we don't throw our hands up under despair because we can't control the fact that we will never understand everything. Now, in the midst of all this, as we look at that chapter and we see those big, broad categories, why do we walk away from this? We just walk away depressed? Let me give you three takeaways. First of all, we need to learn to seek humility, not control. It requires humility to submit to authority. 
to obey authority, to treat authority as authority. Pride wants to defend ourselves. Pride doesn't want to be told what to do. Pride doesn't, pride seeks to control. And you'll never respond well to authority apart from humility. So how do I seek humility? Well, understand, first of all, humility is a gospel issue, not a personality trait. A lot of times we talk about it like it's a personality trait. Oh, they're so humble. Right? And this person's this way. It's just, you know, they've always been like that. And that's just the way. Humility is not a personality trait. It is a gospel issue. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in that sense. Well, how do I pursue it? If I'm a Christ follower, how do I pursue it? First of all, let me encourage you to do this. Read your Bible regularly. You say, what does that do? Well, it expands your understanding of how big God is and how little you are. It's a constant reminder. And the gospel doesn't make us proud. So we need to constantly be putting the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ in front of us because it will never make you more proud if you understand it properly. We have nothing to boast in, it reminds us of. The Gospel makes us humble, and humble people should have no problem with authority because we are under the supreme authority and know that all authorities that may be above us are under that authority. And then look to Jesus in faith because Jesus ultimately modeled humility perfectly. We think of His incarnation, right? He becomes a man. God becomes man. We think of Him going to the cross. Submitting Himself, allowing Himself to, to die that kind of a death. And that is a, in what a Philippians 2 paints, is the supreme picture of humility. But don't forget this also, that He was a little boy. And the Bible tells us He submitted to His mom and daddy. Remember that time they couldn't find Him, then they found Him. And He, he said, I was in my father's house. Didn't you know that? I'd be in my father's house. And the Bible, don't miss this, the Bible says, and he went back and he submitted to his parents. When he was an adult, he submitted to the government. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Somebody comes to him asking about paying taxes. He says, go catch a fish over there. My taxes are in it. You know, there's one for you too, right? But he he submitted to the government where he should submit to the government. He challenged what he needed to challenge. What was out of line with disobeying God and obeying God. And... Supremely, he submitted to his heavenly Father. Remember in the garden? Before he goes to the cross, Jesus is praying alone in the garden. And it's nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So look to Jesus in faith. He's the perfect model of humility. And then just pray. Pray and pray. And then when you're done praying, pray. Because prayer is actually an act of humility. You say, how is that so? By our very action, we're showing our need for God. We're showing that there's authority above us. We're showing that we're dependent on someone else. Steve Gaines, Southern Baptist Convention president and pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church, said something like this one time I heard several years ago. He said, there's no greater pride than prayerlessness because prayerlessness says, I don't need God. How true. So seek humility, not control. Number two, count your blessings in the brokenness. Don't miss the blessings in your life for all the brokenness we see around the world. When we behold injustice and unfairness, when we see the wicked get away, it's easy to despair and to be consumed. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says, in the midst of all this, I commend joy. In verse 14, he explains how it happens to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked and vice versa. And he follows that up with commending joy. Because life is hard and injustice is common. And while we are to strive for justice and do justice, and while we should live soberly and take life seriously, as we talked about last week, we must not be so consumed with this broken nature of this world and fixing it that we miss the blessings God has given us in the world. 
You can, just, you can drown so much in it that you don't enjoy life and don't enjoy God and don't enjoy His blessings. And that is something we are told over and over and over again to do, even in the midst of the brokenness. See, this world's a broken place, but there's a lot in it to enjoy. You will now never fix the world. We can't personally save the world. There's only one Jesus. And we should strive to be like Him and love like Him and proclaim Him and, and do justice and walk humbly with our God and in the midst of that, enjoy your life. The greatest source of joy in this world is God. Knowing God, having a relationship with God through Jesus. Now, Somebody pointed out when I was reading this week, it was just, man, it grabbed me. In verse 14, we don't think about this. We, we see 8.14 there and we see the lament. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And then he goes right into that to commending joy. And we see that lament and we kind of go, I agree, why does this happen? But at the same time, don't miss, in the, the, hidden in that lament is the gospel. Because the most righteous person to whomever lived, it happened according to the deeds of the wicked. And because of that, because He took the punishment the wicked deserves, you and I deserve, because Jesus stepped in and did that and humbly went to the cross and paid our sin debt on the cross and took God's wrath for us, because of that, now there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. We get clothed in the righteousness of the most righteous person to ever live. And it's only when we know that and understand that and our hearts are gripped by that and we put our faith in Christ that we can live truly joyfully even in the midst of injustice and brokenness. You'll never have true and lasting joy in the midst of a broken and unjust world apart from Christ and His Gospel. Number three. Third takeaway. Focus on believing God and not controlling God. When speaking of submitting to the king, remember he said, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. He inserts God right into the picture, I said. It's because this is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. Do you trust God enough and believe God enough to submit to the authorities that God has placed in your life? Do you really believe God is bigger than any authority in your life? He is. And we need to trust him and let that show by obeying what he says about authority. We don't have to like whoever's in authority to submit to or to honor whoever's in authority. Right? I can sit down at a table to eat with a stranger and they can have cooked me a meal. I don't have to like the meal to eat the meal or to say thank you for serving me the meal or to be respectful and show decorum at the table. Right? And in the same way, we don't have to like everything about the government or what happens to show honor, to show respect, and to obey until we can't obey anymore. We cannot manipulate or control God into doing what we want and when we want. We must choose to believe He's good even when we don't understand certain things. And instead of trying to control Him and get Him to do what we want and manipulate, and, 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 we need to trust Him. Let me ask you, are you okay with a God that you have to trust and not one you can control? A God you can trust even when human authorities fail you, but you can't manipulate Him into giving you whatever you want out of that authority? A God you can trust even when injustice happens in this world, but a God you can't manipulate into working on your timetable? 
A God you can trust when you can't figure everything out, but He's not going to give you all the answers. See, life is full of things that frustrate us, things that confuse us, things that we question, things that remind us just how out of control life can be, things that we have absolutely zero control over. And the lack of control in life can drive you mad, can drive you to despair, can drive you a lot of different ways. Or you can let it drive you to humility. You can let it drive you to focus on the good things that God has blessed you with in this broken world. And you can let it drive you deeper into your faith. Two questions for you this morning. Do you know Jesus? The one who suffered what sinners deserve so sinners can reap what only He deserves? Humility and joy and faith begin with Jesus. So maybe this morning you need to surrender control of your life to Him. Secondly, believer, church family, ask God today to help you live wisely, to live humbly, to live joyfully, to live by faith in a broken world. When things are difficult and spinning out of our control and we don't know what to do, rather than get frustrated and put our heads down, let's look up, right? Let's look up and walk by faith.